whole new you. The perfect path to transformation. Secrets to a successful new year. You get to start all over again. Who has not clicked on any such promises, any such invitations, while randomly scrolling through Facebook or even looking at the articles offered on the online version of the New York Times? We are creatures who love to believe that the way things are today is not the way things have to be tomorrow. Whether it is the number of inches needed for a tape measure to completely circle our waistlines, the amount of money that is accumulating in our savings or our retirement accounts, or the depth of connection we feel with either a partner or a friend. Early last week, my attention was completely captivated by a question posed on Instagram by The Guardian. Are you looking for more health and happiness in the year ahead without having to work too hard? More health and happiness? Without having to work too hard, sign me up. And so I clicked on the image uncovering 45 tiny changes to transform your life. I did a relatively quick reading of all 45 of the changes and then took note of how I have already mastered a few of them. Like leaving your phone out of your bedroom at night, keeping a list of what you've read, and lighting candles. I've got these things down pat. I was then amused at a couple of items on the list like brushing your teeth standing on one foot. I'm not sure how that leads to transformation, but I kept on reading and discovered how other changes were filled with wisdom that I not only need, but changes that when embodied could indeed challenge and change everything. Enough that I decided to craft a series around them by selecting a few of my favorites, starting with change number 15 on the list, which reads, believing everyone is interesting and attractive. Believing everyone is interesting and attractive. Can you imagine a disposition in which you marvel at everyone around you? 
one in which you literally assume or take the stance that no matter where you are or where you are going, you are going to find a group of people who are all interesting and attractive. Ponder with me for just a moment. Walking into a staff meeting for which you would typically do anything to convince your boss that it is finally time for them to read Priya Parker's book, The Art of Gathering, before ever summoning you to a boardroom again. But instead of imagining how you dread these forced encounters that are a complete waste of your time, imagine showing up with an eagerness that propels you to want to be the first person to arrive in that room because you cannot wait to see all of your coworkers because they are all interesting and attractive. Or imagine getting off the metro at Gallery Place Chinatown during rush hour with just enough time for you to get to your next appointment or to the start of your workday if you're coming into the office that day. And imagine that you have stepped off the metro train at the same time as a large group of young people who are clearly visitors or tourists in our city. And you're all walking to the escalator at the same time, and it doesn't take long for you to realize how they do not yet know that we stand to the right and walk to the left when climbing the escalator. But instead of being annoyed, all you can think to yourself is, look at all these interesting and attractive young people. Is such a stance even possible? Could we actually embody this mindset day in and day out, wherever we are? I contemplated stopping here and inviting you to turn to someone you don't yet know and tell them you are so interesting and attractive. And then I quickly realized just how uncomfortable that would be. I didn't even think it was going to be funny. <laughs> thought it might be scary, because we're not trained to believe that everyone is interesting or attractive, let alone beloved. We live in a world in which we are instead taught to believe that some people are unworthy of our attention, that some people have little to offer us, that some people just should not consume any of our time, no matter how interesting the conversation might be. And while I've not yet convinced myself that I am capable of approaching every person wherever I am as though they are interesting and attractive, I do know that such belief is only possible through the lens of my faith. 
a faith that begins with the belief that every single person has been created in the image of God. A faith that leads me to believe how every person is also fearfully and wonderfully made. A faith that convicts me to imagine God saying to every person, this is my child, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. A faith in which I seek to follow Jesus, who I believe sees every single person with a depth of compassion that has the ability to elicit the very best in all of us. The fourth gospel, John begins not with angels hovering over a manger that we have romanticized, but instead with sentences that are steeped in theology about how in the beginning was the word, and then additional words about this word. John, unlike the synoptic gospel writers Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who take us to the banks of the River Jordan, where we're given a front row seat at Jesus' baptism, John doesn't begin like them, but rather John tells us about John the Baptist, who then is the one who introduces us to Jesus. The word that was God, or as John the Baptist introduces him to us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John then tells us about his baptism before introducing Jesus to two of John's disciples, Andrew and Simon Peter, who were told immediately leave John to follow Jesus. These two men then encounter Philip, who's from the very same hometown. And Philip also accepts the invitation to follow Jesus without any hesitation, at least the way that John has recorded the story. Philip then goes and finds Nathanael and exclaims how they have found the one about whom the prophets wrote before adding how Jesus is the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Joseph from Nazareth. Jesus is the son of a blue-collar carpenter, not a royal king. He's from the small town of Nazareth, not the royal city of Jerusalem where one would expect a Messiah to come from. And no one has suggested to Nathaniel that he should believe that everyone is interesting and attractive because these two details about Jesus' family and his place of origin or identity are enough for Nathaniel to want to quickly dismiss Jesus as he asks, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth. I wonder if you've ever said something similar. Or thought it. Can anything good 
come out of Central or South America. Can anything good come out of Palestine? Can anything good come out of Israel? Can anything good come out of that political party? Can anything good come from that part of town? Can anything good come out of that religion? Who of you dismissed, assuming that you already know enough? Philip, here's the question and invites Nathaniel to find his own answer to it. By extending the invitation, come and see. The pair then set off and they meet Jesus, who not only greets Nathaniel with intentional positive regard, but also names Nathaniel's righteousness. Jesus lets Nathaniel know that he has fully seen him. I saw you under the fig tree, he says. He then lets him know how this scene allows Jesus to name the core of Nathaniel's identity. You are an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel, in turn, after being fully seen, is also able to see the fullness of who Jesus is, Jesus' identity, rabbi or teacher. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What might happen if we worked hard to see every single person the way we believe Jesus sees us. What would it take for us to fully believe that every single person is interesting and attractive, or better yet, as the psalmist writes, fearfully and wonderfully made, instead of dismissing them because of their race or their sexuality or their social, cultural, or political location or background, what might this whole world look like if more people were willing to step into a life of grace, a life in which we believe that grace not only flows to us as prevenient grace does, but that grace always flows from us as well. Last week I was sharing conversation with one of you 
and you describe the impact that Lee's small group has had on you, particularly Lee's practice of leading his Monday night Bible study on MLK Day to always read Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Jail. You talked about how sitting with this letter has changed you, and so I started to get out the letter once more and to read it again and again and again. And there's a part of the letter that makes me see what the antithesis is of approaching every person as though they are interesting and attractive, what that sounds like when it is not embodied. The letter was written on the occasion of August of 1963, when Dr. King had received a letter from eight white clergymen who suggested that he just tone it down, that he take a different approach to how it is that he was interacting, how it is that he was seeking to end the evil of segregation and embodied racism. And this is part of what Dr. King wrote to those eight individuals, pastors, who suggested that he tone it down. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your brothers and sisters at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television, and you see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children, and you see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky, and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking in agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive, and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored. Imagine how much petrifying trauma how many years of continued systemic oppression could have been avoided if all people would have instead been taught to believe that everyone is fearfully and wonderfully made. Imagine how much racism could be erased if we approached every person with intentional, positive regard believing that we really are all interesting, beautiful, a sight to behold. Imagine what might happen if we allowed the Bible to be our mirror, 
as Dr. King did time and again. In his book, The Preacher King, my professor of preaching, Richard Lister, describes what happened on the night the Supreme Court ended bus segregation when 8,000 people gathered in two churches in Montgomery, Alabama. At the first service, a Lutheran pastor named Robert Grace, the only white clergyman in town who joined the Montgomery Improvement Association, the only white preacher in town who joined the Montgomery Improvement Association was appointed to read 1 Corinthians 13. You likely know the chapter. The one that's most popular to be read at weddings that begins with love is patient, love is kind. But before he rose to read, Ralph Abernathy, who was Dr. King's close friend and mentor, whispered to him, read it like you've never read it before. <clears throat> read it like you've never read it before. Put everything in it. Put everything into how you read. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Dr. Lisher writes how when grades came to the words, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. The congregation burst into spontaneous applause and cheers. But what if every white pastor not only read love chapter like they had never ever read it before but also beckon and taught members of their congregation to live it like they had never ever lived it before modeling what it means to put away childish things in a way that not only allows the oppressed to burst into spontaneous applause, but to be set free once and for all. Beloveds, we have made significant progress in this country since Dr. King was assassinated nearly 50 years ago. There is still a long, long way to go when it comes to all persons being seen as made in God's image. The reason God's heart beats and sometimes skips a beat to be approached in such a way that we demand God's very best, not only for our lives and our children and our relatives, but for all of God's beloved children. Who then 
after you. You need to go and see. Who do I need to come and see? Instead of easily keeping my distance, judging from afar. I imagine that if we really did seek to believe every person is both interesting and attractive. Imagine that that change wouldn't be so tiny. that it is a stance, a belief, a way of living that could change everything. Starting with